The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar twice, and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne, delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to episode 256 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my friend Corrie Perkin. Good to see you, Corrie. Hello, Caro. Hello, Jane. Look at Jane's flowers today. Beautiful. Pink, hydrangeas. Baby hydrangea. Herbs. That garden, I tell you. Um, Look, there's a lot to talk about, Corrie. A few apologies. You owe me an apology. Stracciatella is the right pronunciation. So, sorry, Caro. That's fine, Corrie. Now, my turn. I said I said that Harry Styles went to Chibo in Melbourne's um, or Fitzroy region last week or the week before. It's Chibi. Chibi. C-I-B-I. I'm an idiot. It's a fabulous place. They make great coffee, incredible Japanese homewares and other stuff. So, um, And thank you to our local pedant, Clementine Donahue, for picking up both of <laughs> Go, Clem. Now, we've had a big response to your grey hair conversation, Corrie. Flutterbunches, one of the best decisions I've made. I've had so many wonderful endorsements from friends and random people who compliment my hair. Shortish, grey and curls. Blue Waterloo, I'm with Caro, not ready or game yet. <laughs> Margie Rue, Vic, I stopped colouring my hair a few years ago and have no regrets. It's very liberating. I find it infuriating that older women are still judged on their looks, whether, whereas grey-haired men are seen as distinguished and wise. We need to rethink the way we value women. Older women are wonderful. Yvette Quant, love my grey hair. My mother, who never dyed her hair in her life, my grandkids and best friend were horrified when I decided to no longer dye it. Never regret it. I know a few women who are actually dying there is grey. Oh, what? And Corrie, you made some <laughs> points on grey hair. You were completely wrong on transseasonal coats. Even Miss Jane has picked up a local bargain. I maintain that transseasonal coats are a waste of money. Deirdre Nine. Sorry, Corrie, but agree wholeheartedly with Caro on the coat debate. In Melbourne, we underrate the value, the underestimate the value of a coat in all seasons. Could I please have more feedback on Go Corrie? We agree. What a waste of five hundred dollars. Anybody out there? Miss Jane, you picked up. Tell us about your bargain the other day. Bacchus Marsh Op Shop because I needed some new coats because the dogs chewed holes and jumped and ripped um, some Jane coats. Jane has a new puppy, everybody, <laughs> a new little bordoodle. Yeah, that likes to bite coats. A country road. Trench mm. for twenty five bucks oh, in now, mint condition. Do you know what, Thank Jane? I do not have a problem with that. I do not have a problem with that, Carol. That is a bargain. That's yes. brilliant. It's the going to buy another coat to add to the cupboard at full price that I find just a oh, bit over n- the none top. of us. None of us do that. We always oh, buy them. You're a bit of a coat fiend. Yeah, my my gabardine from. Um, El Corte Inglés in um, Madrid was half price. Yeah, well, that's about 25 bucks. That's just oh, bargain. Oh, my Lee Matthews polished cotton pale pink trench, <laughs> one quarter price. Is um, that the one when you wear it into this studio, Jane says, could you take it off because you're rustling? No, th- no, that's my Rain's raincoat. Hey, um, we've um, also, um, I've also done my Amsterdam tips 
sent them to our friend Sam Thompson, who I think is in Amsterdam as we speak. There's been a lot. There've been a lot of questions about oh, could we please have Caro's Amsterdam tips? Well, there's there's food, there's culture, there's brown bars, there's coffee. It's all online. It's all going to be in our show Where notes. Where to buy your clogs? Um, no, not that. Another lovely email, Caro, from Sam Douglas. Just wanted to say a big thank you for the recommendation of North Sea. My husband and I got into habit through COVID watching TV separately. But this show brought us back together on the couch. We've got a few good recommendations for screen this week. Keep the great recommendations coming, says Sam. Um, And I agree with her here. Otherwise, it is hard to navigate through the vast amount of choices on all the different streaming services. And we end up paralysed with indecision and watching nothing. Sam, uh, just a tip. Uh, It's... uh, Oh, now I'm going to get this wrong. It's either Mamma Mia or The Age. It is definitely one or the other. Uh, A bit different. Well, you could just subscribe through through your um, through uh, Instagram, Caro. Both um, both those media outlets have an Instagram account where, at the start of each month, they say what's coming up on uh, on subscriber television, and it's really good actually because they do Stan and then they do Netflix. So each each screen, as you're scrolling through, each screen is Stan, Netflix, Paramount. It's really good. You'll get a few tips there. There were slight words um, on our sofa last night because. Um, we ran into um, a Sydney friend, a podcast friend, Rod Lewis, who suggested A Spy Among Friends, We Must Watch. It's on Britbox. It stars Guy Pearce and Damien Lewis. Sort of your Cambridge Spies vibe. Sounds absolutely brilliant. And Brendan just said, we don't have Britbox anymore and we are not getting it. So we started um, Daisy Jones and the Six instead, mm. which is fabulous. Wonderful. With, is it Riley Keogh that Elvis's... Um, granddaughter? Uh, I think that is. She's yes. absolutely. She's the main, she's the main She plays singer. Daisy. Yeah. And it's, it's loosely based on the Fleetwood Mac story, isn't it? Very, well, very loosely. Yeah. Taylor Jenkins yeah. Reid novel. It's really good. But um, I think you should review that next week if you haven't been to the movies, just FYI. Corrie, we're speaking on the eve of International Women's Day. And this is obviously a, a big day on many levels. Such a big day, in fact, it's falls on a Wednesday this year in early March that the AFL have moved their season launch to Thursday. Mm-hmm. And the, I, I only noticed that the, Good on you boys. the AFL season launch was moved to a Thursday because the Sydney Swans, who lost the grand final last year, are not coming to the AFL season launch. Probably a good idea because they're going to have to watch a 15-minute video of Geelong, the grand <laughs> holding final, the, holding the cup, and I remember the I remember some years when the losers, you know, slink out the president and the CEO. I remember that the Adelaide um, chairman and CEO Andrew Fagan and uh, Rob Chapman walking out with very cross looks on their faces at the Forum Theatre a few years ago. Anyway, um, the um, Sydney Swans won't be there because they have their Guernsey presentation, and I thought maybe they were deliberately avoiding it, but it was put to me the AFL did put theirs on a different date this year because some people felt it was a bad look having the season launch on International Women's Day. No, I'm sorry. Oh, you don't agree? Oh, I think that's a bit pedantic, don't you? I think that's um, that's honourable, actually. Look, there there is no – it's always great to go to function celebrating women. But do we still need International Women's Day? Well, that's a very good question, Caro, and you posed that to me when we were walking this week or the weekend. And I've been thinking a lot about it, and I've decided that my soul is bro- is is in in two with this one. So there is a part of me that adores International Women's Day. In fact, I was, um, and I think a lot of women have this uh, experience, and some men as well. I was invited to uh, an International Women's Day event last week, 
a pre-event, a pre-week event, and it was run by the Royal Women's Hospital, our friends there, and mm. it was uh, terrific. I was on the table of our good friend and friend of the pod, Lynn Swinburne, and it was a remarkable opportunity to um, gather a whole group of women in a breakfast situation, and um, dare I say, before most uh, most people went to work, and um, to listen to the medical stats, to hear the state health minister talk, to hear what the women's has achieved, is achieving and plans to in the future, it was really terrific. Jamila Resvi gave a very um, heartfelt and amazing talk about her own experience with Ill, Ill health and being diagnosed in her early 30s with brain tumour. It was really great and I thought, how fantastic is the mood in the room? And when you go to one of those, I know you're speaking at one this week, an event, when you're part of that collective moment, you think, gosh, women have come a long way. And for me, it's it, for me always with the women's movement and feminism, it's about two things, power and pay or parity. Um, we still are lagging behind in terms of um, uh, equal wage with men and, of course, equal power. So we have to redress the balance there. And if this is a collective day to think about those issues, along with many other, that's a great thing. The other part of me thinks, haven't we evolved enough that we don't need to put women on a separate, in a separate shelf all on their own? International Men's Day? I don't think so. No, that's right. And, uh, you know, I know we're redressing several hundred years of imbalance here, but I do sometimes feel a bit irksome and I can't explain why when women are ghettoised is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. We're kind of pulled apart and treated separately as this sort of separate entity when in fact all we want to do is be equal. So shouldn't we just be equal and perhaps not have a day? So I'm always very torn there. If you could go to one International Women's Day event, what would it be? Um, I'm going to one. On Thursday, I'm going to Grandparents Day at Hattie's school. That's not an International Women's Day event. Well, it will be. You should see some of the five and six-year-olds, Caro. Aren't there any grandparents going to be there? Yeah, grandparents. So uh, males there as well? Oh, yeah, there'll be males. And there are boys in her class. But it's just great to see little women. Yes. Speaking because of... Because at that age, Caro, they don't think they're any different whatsoever. They absolutely have not, unless their parent, there's been a bit of parental influence. But most kids at that age have no idea that there's oh, a so big difference. So this is an all-girls school? No, no, it's not. No, there are boys in the class. Well, isn't that what's the women's day? <laughs> because I'll be surrounded by five and six-year-old women, little women. And little men. And little men who, exactly right, Cara, and little men, little men and little women who have no view about anything to do with sexism, um, I'm better than you, I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you, all of that. That sounds good. Mine's mythical. I would like to go to, a, to hear a, see a panel of Catherine the Great. Lillian Hellman, throw in Jane Austen just for fun. Because you know Catherine the Great sent a lot of people to their death, don't you? I just she think, was incredibly grim. I think they would just be a, a fascinating trio, a fascinating trio to a, a playwright who was all flawed in their own ways. Certainly Lillian Hellman was and clearly Catherine the Great was. And look, throw in Elizabeth I just for good measure. So you've got two leaders two writers, and there are women writers I love more. There are women artists I absolutely love, Dorothy would, Braun. I'd love to I'd love to hear, see her on a panel. I'd love to see a, a bunch of really complex, powerful, talented, flawed, but ahead of their time women speaking on yeah, a panel together. I'd, I'd be happy to go to an event with Beyonce. She yeah. rocks. 
Yeah, but I'd probably rather hear her sing. I mean, <laughs> you know. Oh, she's very, she is very articulate on all matters. I'm sure e- she is, equal. but she's she's a better singer, so I'd I'd rather hear her do that. And do you have three women heroes, current heroes? Um, my current heroes. Well, you'll think I'm corning now because I've to follow up from the grandparents' day. But I would say my three women heroes right at this moment in my life and indeed in theirs are my two daughters and my daughter-in-law, Francesca Lib daughter-in-law and Coco, other daughter, uh, the daughter, younger daughter, um, because they're just right in the thick of where you and I were 30 years ago, kids and careers or partnering and what does the future look like and do you buy a house or not or do you travel or what do you do and where do you go and how, don't forget it's your mother, mother-in-law's birthday next week, we've got to buy a present and don't forget to um, take the stuff to the dry cleaner and I've got to be at work in half an hour and the kid's not even in the clothes to get to crash, all of that stuff and they juggle it and they're remarkable. And of course, then I would say my other three women heroes are my three granddaughters because the future is theirs. What about you? Oh, well, there's, I don't have a, you know, a, a set list, but I, there is some, one woman I'm thinking of at the moment and she's not, I wouldn't call her a friend, but she's battling breast cancer. Her name is Sonia Hood. She's a chairman of the um, North Melbourne Football Club, chairwoman, president of the North Melbourne Football Club. She went through one of the toughest years I can remember for a club president last year. It was just never ending, never ending, you know, reviews, team performing badly, number one draft pick, leaving, sacking the coach, hiring Alistair Clarkson, losing Alistair Clarkson due to the Hawthorne racism inquiry. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And then to be diagnosed earlier this year with breast cancer, I'm absolutely sure that she will battle through this and will be absolutely fine at the other end. But um, I think she's only just had surgery. So I can, can I just was thinking about her um, only yesterday. So I she, agree. I agree. She would I, be one woman who, who I would mention. It, women who are trying to maintain the, the regular pattern of their lives, be they board positions or CEO jobs or just you, just looking after family and they've, they're on the side, they've got some terrible illness or they're, as you say, fighting a cancer battle. They are our heroes. And a lot, like a lot of women presidents in the AFL, she's certainly, and Peggy O'Neill is the, you know, the beacon she just came into it and did it her way. Completely different. Completely different. Love that. Caro, it's been a very interesting week in, in the children's literature sphere. Uh, you've probably heard the story. Roald Dahl um, has, <laughs> Roald Dahl's classic children's books have been censored. Um, colourful language has been removed from some of those seminal works like Witches and the Fabulous Mr Fox, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda to make them more acceptable to modern readers. Penguin Random House announced that their Puffin books by Roald Dahl are going to receive some uh, changes in relation to mental health, weight, gender and race. And saying that it's okay to wear wigs. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> well, no, you can wear a wig because you're having treatment. There are re- Medical there are... treatment. Uh, I... No longer called... Characters no longer called fat. They're called enormous. Look, this is just crazy. Did you see Q&A last night? No, I didn't. Mm, it was I didn't. one of the hot topics, actually. I, I David the, Hare was on it. David Hare sniffed at this whole idea. Oh, the playwright. Famous playwright, British oh, playwright. Oh, yeah. I'll watch that. No, yeah, have the, a look. Um, it was very interesting. Caroline Overington wrote a, a scathing column about it in The Australian a couple of weeks ago, and um, I sort of tend to agree with her. I mean, I just I don't understand where do you draw the line? Where does it stop? I mean, I know this is all about children's literature and it's about education, but... 
I just don't think children are going to read that and think, do they take it as part of real life? I mean, I grew up on Enid Blyton novels. I, I, I would go to bed on a rainy weekend and lie in bed all day and read three Enid Blyton novels over a weekend. And I didn't grow up thinking that, you know, silky and her long silky hair. I mean, I, there were so many things about this that are ridiculous. I don't think it formed my views in any way. And I don't think people think of Roald Dahl and Roald Dahl and some of those characters out of, I mean, Augustus Gloop in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Well, one of the things that people, he the was children fat. Lo- yeah, one of the things that the children love. He about- was a greedy guts. <laughs> one of the things that the children love about Roald Dahl is that his characters are grotesque and awful and ugly and fat and selfish and mean and whatever else they are. What does the Dahl Foundation, the Dahl Foundation or his family had to say about this? Well, I don't know, but this is pure censorship. It's it's actually rewriting somebody's work. And I can only imagine that, well, Roald Dahl would have been completely outraged. I can't imagine what the family well, they've obviously thinking. allowed it to happen because they they would have some say over it unless he, unless the rights have been sold. I mean, it, maybe they're saying they won't put them in, in the market. Otherwise, I... I can't understand it. Well, it says here in this article in The Guardian, Roald Dahl died in 1990 and the changes were made by his estate in partnership with the organisation Inclusive Minds. Inclusive Minds is a UK group. Carrot promotes diversity in books for children. Plans were made to market the doctored books as providing a more reader-friendly experience. Now, some in- and in- we had an interesting chat about this last week, Carol, in one of my Corrie's reading author, meet the author sessions at the South Yarra Library. We had Chloe Hooper, the wonderful Melbourne writer. Many people remember the tall man, the arsonist, such a great writer. And her new book called Bedtime Story is about, she goes into the world of children's um, literature over a couple of hundred years. and, and What was her first brilliant book? A children's uh, book of... Oh, uh, Book of Evil. Uh, crime. Evil? Yeah, children's book of crime. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, really... That's it, right. it had all animals as a... That was the first one I read. She's a great writer. She's, uh, so I asked Chloe about this uh, this Roald Dahl uh, fracas that's happening and her thoughts were that you can't, you shouldn't really change a writer's work but you can uh, eventually... I mean, as, as as parents, as students, as booksellers and librarians, you can actually advise and monitor and say, look, this book is not really entirely appropriate because, for example, um, Enid Blyton might have gollywogs in it or Roald Dahl might be calling a character fat. And that the, the children and the parents in that cohort will make a decision not to read that book. I then referred to the participating bookseller in the room that night, Chris Redfern of the Avenue Bookstore. And I said, so, Chris, how are Roald Dahl and Enid Blyton selling? And he said, still like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there, I think children have their own filter. I think they probably do process a lot of this stuff and kind of understand it. I don't think by them following a gollywog character that they're going to inherently become racist. And I think parents and teachers do have a role to play there. No, all that nonsense about police brutality and naughty is, I mean, it's just, I, I just find it really, But swings really and roundabouts, do you remember in the 80s and 90s when they said naughty and big ears couldn't jump into bed together? That was seen as absolutely, um, and all of those those parts of those books, they were sort of taken off the shelves. And now, of course, it's totally fine for Noddy and Big Ears to be in bed, whether they're in a relationship or whether they're just good buddies. I've, so things move around. I've been reading because I found it um, in my bookshelf. It's an old and completely old-fashioned and just complete, well, it's sort of 
it's enjoyable trash, really. An old uh, Rosamond Pilcher trilogy. And, you know, she wrote, of course, some um, September and um, The Shell Seekers and Coming Home. And I love her books. I know you do. And They're I bought, mainly set in Cornwall. I, yeah, I bought one on your behalf. And I, when I got it home after I'd bought it, the font size is about minus two point. Yeah, the I font think. is – luckily I'm wearing my glasses when I read it. Well, I was reading one called Wild Heather Time or something in this trilogy. I mean, it is so – the woman in it, the heroine – She's not a Mary Stewart. She's not a plucky heroine. She's bloody hopeless and she's with the wrong man. And she only ends up with the right man because he comes, the wrong man leaves and the new one comes and orders her to, you know, it it is completely sexist tripe, but it's escapist. I don't really think that. I mean, I, I, I don't think it, I don't think it shapes your views the way they're trying to say that, I don't um, think so. I remember Anna from the op shop when Rose was born trying to find, wanted to buy a little black Sambo. And she went to all these bookshops and all she could find was books about studying little black Sambo. <laughs> she couldn't right. find the actual book. I mean, that's right. it was written. It was a product of its time. Well, it was funny the other day, Caro, you know, Barry Jones, the wonderful 90-year-old, um, wonderful Australian, he is a national treasure. He's actually qualified as a national treasure. We were going back and forth on the email because, of course, he's going to be one of the guests at the Sorrento Writers Festival. And um, we're going back and forth and his email to me was, you know, how's the festival going? And I said, oh, Barry, it's growing like Topsy, dash whoever Topsy may be. And he came straight back, of course, because he's brilliant. He came back saying... Of course he knows who Topsy is. (laughs) Of course he does. (laughs) Of course he knows. So Topsy was a character in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which has now been um, criticised and not exactly cancelled, but I think there's some. Um, oh, completely! You know, a, lot, no, a lot of comments. A lot, you know, it's long-standing. How it's 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 relationship with slavery and all of that sort of thing. But um, Barry came back saying Topsy was a little slave girl in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Asked where she came from, she said, "I expect I growed." And then Barry's gone in brackets, grown, exclamation mark. So even Barry disapproves of Uncle Tom's Cabin and Topsy. Anyway, there's just a little bit of trivia for you. Um, Carol, it goes goes further and it probably relates to our conversation last week about the Adelaide or the week before about the Adelaide Writers' Festival. I mean, I think there are certain areas, like when when you have panels legitimising in some way Nazism or anti-Semitism, I can – that's different. But, but I honestly think children's books are a bridge too far. Oh, yeah. And there are some children's books too. For example, Dr. Doolittle, uh, um, which was written in the early 20th century um, by Hugh um, – it'll come to me in a minute – his surname. Um, it came under fire because it, because it continually throughout the book portrays negative Hugh stereo- Lofting? Yeah, Hugh Lofting, that's right. It's a great book. I loved it as a kid, but this bit I think was taken out. He portrayed um, negative, by the time I came around to read it, which was in the 70s probably, early 70s, um, portraying negative stereotypes of, um, of black people and there were co- uh, colonialist overtones in the book. For example, the doctor agrees to help an African prince who wants to marry um, a, a, a Caucasian princess, and the doctor bleaches his skin. I mean, that is just shocking. That is, but we have to go back in time to the early twentieth century, and to remember that that's how people saw the world. But certainly, a book like that or that chapter of that book should not be coming coming to our children. 
No. You won't get me reading Dr. Doolittle at Grandparents' Day, I can tell you that. I don't think that happened in the movie. It was a great movie with oh, Rex Harrison. Oh, Rex Harrison, wasn't it? Oh. And remember the pink snail? The two-headed llama. Remember the pink snail, the giant yes. snail? And Samantha Edgar was the kind of love interest. Yes, he was a, a British star who went to Hollywood for a while. No, there's a great author, um, Jared Tekel, who wrote Appointment with Venus, which is a book I just absolutely loved. Sort of similar to the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society, whatever it's called. But he's written a couple of books. I then went down the rabbit hole of reading Jared Tekel and Oh, there's some very, very racist books. One set in the West Indies, largely. Um, one set in London where the anti-Semitic comment about these Jews working upstairs. I mean, it's just shocking. But you read it and you know. You, uh, you do. Anyway. And the question is, do children have that sort of filter? I'm not, anyway, I think parents should always be aware what their kids are reading. But More on Corrie cancel culture and who she's having and can not having to her writers' festival to be held at Sorrento in late April. You, you, you can come. Next week. Oh, jeez. We're actually doing a, we're doing a live podcast on the Wednesday night. More on that. Jane can fill us all in on that next week. And here we are with the Cocktail Cabinet for another week and Miles Thompson of Prince Wine Store is on the line to us. Hi, Miles. How are you going? I'm very good. How is everyone? We are well and I understand you're having a, a holiday, as they always say, which is such a cliche, a well-earned break. I never quite know what that means. But, Miles, we're going to talk port today. And before I throw to Miss Jane, who has our reader question, I just wanted to ask you, did I pick up this bottle from Prince Wine Store? I think I might have in, in one of our Riesling chats. I had it on the weekend with ice, I hate to say, but like as an aperitif, and it's absolutely delicious. It's a Savoy, S-A-V-O-I-E, a Jacquere 2017, and the winemaker is Dumaine Dupasquiere. Does that sound oh, like one of yours? I'd say so, yeah. My goodness, what a beautiful colour. And what a beautiful drop. There's not a lot around, but um, that's probably one of the better ones. Really, really beautiful. So that was your mm. recommendation. So thanks for that. So on to Port Jane, you have the reader question. Listener question, Corrie. Oh, <laughs> listener. Sorry, God. Take the girl out of newspapers, but you can't take the newspapers out of the girl. Listen to the show. <laughs> Yeah. Um, this is actually for one of our listeners who is lucky enough to be jaunting around overseas, Sam T. Hope you're having a wonderful time. Also using Caro's recommendations in Amsterdam. She has a gentleman doing some house sitting, keeping an eye on her place back in Melbourne, who loves Port Miles. So she wanted your recommendation of a really memorable bottle of port that would be a great gift for someone who's uh, done the hard yards and looked after a place for several weeks. So I'm reckoning we can go almost to the top shelf on this one, Miles. So have you got a port for us? Yeah, look, there's been a string of really good vintages of port recently and they have to declare in port. They have a couple of years to sort of say, this vintage is great. We're going to make a single bottling from this vintage. Anyway, the most recent one is Fonseca, uh, sorry, uh, Taylor's Vintage Port. Um, it's their 2018, and it is a real stunning example of port, and it sort of sits in the middle ground of port. It's not super rich, but it's not super light either. There's there's lots of different styles there, and it sits somewhere in the middle, and it's this, the, the 18s are just absolutely wonderful, just that beautiful, clean, sort of sweet fruit, lovely freshness, Plenty of those lovely sort of dark fruits that you get there, all in this really lovely sort of quite sort of fresh and, and sort of crunchy style, but still in that lovely sort of sweet port. It's not super unctuous, 
like something like um, often Fonseca is in that really sort of anxious style. This sits somewhere in the more sort of midway. And the 18s are absolutely stunning. So stupidly good vintage from one of the sort of great port houses. So that's the Taylors, uh, which I think is in, uh, is it the Clare Valley? Taylors are in Clare Valley? No, no. Taylor's from Port. This is the real deal. Right. Oh, okay, okay. It's Port Corrie. It yeah, comes sorry. from Portugal. Oh, God, it's the name thing again, isn't it? Are there grape-growing regions in Australia where we do a good um, – are we allowed to call it Port now? I'm really no. confused. No, no, we're not. So what do we call no, it we, here? We usually just call it fortified or vintage fortified. Okay, the term fortified. Any areas yeah. in Australia that you, you would recommend? Yeah, look, Rutherglen's where it's at, same where you see musket and topaz and things like that, mate. So those sort of classic fortified styles. So Rutherglen's the one, but but other people make it. The other one that I was going to talk about briefly too is um, Inkwell, which is out of the McLaren Vale. They're a really lovely McLaren Vale producer. Um, and they make a, a fortified Zinfandel, and it's fantastic. It's really delicious. Um, it's really, really cool. I could definitely recommend that as well if you want to go an Aussie version. But otherwise, you can go to Rutherglen and there's lots of all the big sort of fortified houses there that make muskets. You usually make some sort of vintage fortified as well. Miles, they're great recommendations. So Sam T has her thank you gift to the houseminder. So they're not cheap. Uh, the half bottle is 130 and the full bottle is 250 But But you've got both options there, so... If you don't want to go the full 250, now that's really, you know, the other thing about these to probably mention really quickly is if they were going to store them, I mean, you know, 50 years for a vintage port stored properly is is not a stretch at all. So, you know, you really sort of get your bang for your buck there. Oh, that's a great recommendation, Miles. I think we might talk Pinot Noir next week, which is always a wonderful drop for autumn or indeed if you're Corrie Perkin any time of the year, really. (laughs) Exactly. Lots of good pinos out at the moment, so should be easy. Thanks, Miles. That was a cocktail cabinet thanks to Prince Wine Store. Remember, use the promo code M-E-S-S, short for messenger, for your special discount. And on that website, go to princewinestore.com.au. That's who you email. Corrie, thanks to Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStart twice, we go to BSF, Books, Screen and Food. Now, you have the new Dominic Smith, which I'm fascinated to hear about. I do. Well, as a book. It, yes, we do. Well, we actually, actually, I'm doing an event with him too this week, so that will be very exciting as well. Caro, uh, many people will remember Dominic Smith as the author of The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, which came uh, jumped out of the bookshelves Uh, in 2016. I can't even remember how many copies of that book we sold, but gosh, what a wonderful book that was. And I know you enjoyed it too. Set in Amsterdam during the golden period of uh, the golden era of painting, um, but it went back and forth in time. Um, Between New York and Australia and Australia. Australia. Yeah, it's a really good book if nobody's ever read it. Anyway, Dominic is is an Australian who now lives uh, permanently in the US and uh, his sixth novel is, uh, it just arrived as a March release, Return to Valletta. It has the most sumptuous, beautiful Tuscan style cover. You won't miss it. And uh, it's set in Umbria in a fictional town called Valletto. And it's a contemporary story, but we do go back to the dying days of World War II when, of course, the Allied forces had landed in the 
boot or the ankle of Italy and were working their way up, destroying Nazis and the partisans, Italian partisans were working on their behalf. So there was a lot of Mussolini and the fascists versus the partisans going on. And this part of this backstory is the hiding of partisans and how towns, little towns such as Valletta were so deeply divided. I guess that happened in France as well. Our main character is an American historian. His name is Hugh Fisher. He is probably in his 50s. I'm trying to work out. I think he's in his 50s. He was widowed a few years earlier, but uh, the deep love of his life and has not recovered. He arrives to visit his old aunts, who his mother was, um, was Italian and from this particular village, and he's arrived to do some research on uh, dying Italian towns. And he visits his grandmother, who is about to turn 100, and his three aunts, who all live at Valletto. The family politics are extraordinary. The 100-year-old grandmother is a fabulous character. And we go back in time a lot with Hugh recalling his time as a young child going to stay with this, this family. The character who is rather buried and shady and we're not sure of who she actually is, but this comes forward as the story unfolds, is Hugh's mother, who had died a few years earlier, only one of the four daughters to have died. And Hugh always found her a very removed character. Their father did a runner years earlier. Hugh was brought brought up by this mother who was very detached and hard to get to know. And Hugh, during this particular trip to Valletto for the 100th birthday, discovers more about his mother's past. And it goes back to her childhood during that time of uh, 1944 when the Allied forces were making their mark. This is a super story, Caro. It has twists and turns. I have been gently on the edge of my seat. It's not what you call a thriller. It's a family drama. But I love, as you know, an historical drama. And I think, as he did with the last painting of Sarah DeVos, Dominic Smith has an extraordinary capacity to go back into time, not only with his characters, but also the understanding of the time. So remember with Sarah DeVos, it was all about those unsung female painters yep. who basically propped up the Dutch masters uh, while the men were getting all the accolades, the women were doing the sketches in the hard yards in the back room. Well, this is about um, what happens to the innocents, um, the innocent people when, when war um, comes and when there is a divided community. I really love this book. I think he's so clever in in um, in picking up the issues of that particular time, but also keeping us suspended. Will Hugh find true love again? That's all we really want to know. <laughs> no, no, no. We want to know what else happens with the sisters and the hundred-year-old grandmother. But but will Hugh find love? And what is the story of the uh, curious woman who lives in the little villa next to the castle? Mm, stay tuned. Oh, God. Well, returning anywhere in Puglia sounds like fun to me. Return to Valletto. By Dominic Smith. I really enjoyed Sarah DeVos. I wasn't so... I never got into the Electric Horseman. Oh, no, Electric um, Hotel. Electric Hotel, sorry. Which is about the early years of the movie uh, motion picture business. I thought it was fabulous. I have to go back and have another go. Particularly the French element in that, how the French were so deeply involved and never received the accolades they perhaps should have in the developing of the industry. I loved it. I have to go back and have another look at that. So um, Screen Corrie, I watched um, a fascinating film on Apple TV last week called Sharper. Now, Sharper is a term, oh, look, for a a con person. And this film starring Julianne Moore and John Lithgow, they're the two most famous 
people in the film, but um, another star of the film is a good actor by the name of Justice Smith and um, another good actor by the name of Brianna Middleton. The, the film opens in New York in a bookshop. It's, I suppose you could describe it as a neo-noir sort of thriller. Nobody is what they seem. And the twists and turns, there are different segments in the film named after certain characters. So um, the Char- op- Characters in a novel or characters? No, characters in the film. So Justice Smith, um, he plays the bookshop owner and a young woman walks into the bookshop after a certain book by a certain author and what happens as a result of this meeting between these two people sets off a spiral of events, some past, some present. Um, Gosh, nothing exciting like that ever happened to me in my bookshop. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't probably want this to happen to you in your bookshop. The, The film starts and opens in the same bookshop, but what goes on in between is just a, a fabulous crime thriller. I really, really recommend it. It's called Sharper. It's on Apple TV, as I said. Um, in parts? No, no, it's a, it's a film. It's a film. and it's But each character gets their own special time in the sun. And there are some pretty shabby characters in this, I can tell you. But they're not all shabby. And it's the, the the twists and the turns, just when you think you've seen the final twist, there's another one. Oh, and I love Julianne Moore. Yeah, she's she's really, really good in it. So um, great recommendation from Anna from the Op Shop. Great. Well, I have one too. Uh, it's on SBS On Demand and uh, it's, it's from Denmark and it's called The Investigation. It is, as we call it in our house, a reading movie. It has subtitles. So don't just jump up and make yourself a cup of tea. You'll have to pause it. Um, cause you'll miss a whole lot, but Caro, this is, we watch this over several, uh, several, it's several series. It's, I mean, sorry, it's several, uh, chapters or several episodes and, uh, we are taken into a crime and we see nothing other than only what the head of the Copenhagen police homicide unit, Jens Moller sees. So we are with him trying to solve this crime. So there's no kind of backflash or no murder hovering around. Is no this suspects. the one you told me that has the characters from Borgen in it? The yes, actors? Oh, yes. I texted my brother last night and said, what's that new Danish Scandi that's got all the characters from Borgen? Yeah, and so, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, well, you, can, you. You, can, you can tell Sorry. him now. You can tell him. So you'll remember in Borgen, Torben, the character Torben Friis, who plays the news, the TV news director, um, he is the main character. He is the head of the homicide unit. His name in the show is, um, uh, what is his name in the show? It's just suddenly gone out of my notes. Um, and the other character, remember Casper, who was the prime minister's media advisor? Yes. And he hooked up with Katrine, the journalist. He plays the police prosecutor in a great role. And what... Um, what the uh, homicide unit head is trying to work out is a Swedish journalist has, called Kim Wall has disappeared in a submarine incident, homemade submarine, in the waters of Copenhagen. So once again, as we saw in the bridge, we have Danish and Swedish working together. You know, it's one of those kind of cross, cross-country, cross-border um, investigations. This is a terrific show. It is very dark, and I mean not dark, violent, just there's a heaviness and a weightiness about it. Remember when you and I went to Babette's Feast 
And we walked out and said, my God, A, I want to see sunshine, B, I need a drink, and C, I need a laugh. Yeah, yep, exactly. (laughs) It's a a little like that. But when I was um, reading up about the investigation, it was made in uh, in 2020 in the middle of COVID. And I think that probably explains the solitary nature in some way. There is a solitary nature about this this character um, um, that, oh, Jens Moller is his name, Um, and... And there is a solitary... When isn't there a solitary nature with a cop or a detective? And they've always got a drinking problem if or anybody a broken is, marriage. If or... anybody listening is, it does work in a homicide unit or um, major crime, or if you're related to somebody, can you tell us, are they all, do they all have a complicated backstory? These friends and family members of yours. That uh, I mean, it wouldn't be a story without. Oh, it's yeah, so great. it's really good. So that's SBS On Demand. It's called The Investigation. Now you have a recipe. I do. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's from um, one of my favourite Otto Lingi cookbooks, Jerusalem. And um, my friend and architect and great cook, Anthony Pye, made this some years ago on New Year's Eve. And I've loved it ever since. And I haven't cooked it for ages. But now is a good time. It is the roast sweet potato and fig salad. Oh, how autumnal. It is so autumnal. The figs are everywhere at the moment. The secret, there are a few secrets to this recipe. It's pretty simple. You basically, well, the amount I used is a kilo of sweet potatoes, four small or two big. You don't have to peel them. Cut them into like big fat chips. So big fat, like cut them in half and then in long sort of chippy slices, but they're big and thick. Cook them in a really, really, really hot oven Um, tossed in um, olive oil and salt and pepper. The oven's really hot, 220, for about um, 40 minutes. And they come out all crunchy and beautiful, but not too, not falling apart. Not black. No, but a little bit, but but a little bit dark brown and crunchy. Um, Then you basically get um, six fresh ripe figs and you quarter them or even smaller, maybe cut them into six beautiful little segments and you dot them around the sweet potatoes And basically what you do then is you fry up a whole lot of spring onions. It says 12, but you get just buy a bunch of spring onions onions, and you cut them lengthwise and in half again. So they're in those slithery bits like they do in really beautiful Asian meals. And you cook the spring onion and red chilli in more olive oil. In the oven or on the pan? In the frying pan. And you pour the, the cooked spring onion, not too burnt, just a bit crispy and they don't burn the chilli. You pour that over the the sweet potato and the fig, and then you make, well, if you buy that balsamic, that thick balsamic glaze. I'm not mad on that. It's a bit sweet for me. Well, yeah, you say that, but this, well, I, I did it from scratch. I liked the way you did it, can I say? Thanks, Corrie. You basically cook up a little bit of balsamic vinegar with a little bit of caster sugar, and once it gets, just before it's gone to the consistency of honey, turn it off. You might need to add some water before you pour it in sort of streaks over the salad. That's it. It So if anybody out there thinks that Carol and I are not friends and we just have a bit of a show happening with this podcast, I went to her place for dinner, hers and Brendan's, on Friday night. We had a lovely time and Carol served this dish. And I'm always a bit, when I see figs, I'm always a bit concerned about, is this going to be a sweet, sour salad? What? How is this going to taste? And I said to you afterwards, it wasn't sweet. It was perfect. The balance of flavours was perfect. And you pointed out the chilli, the spring onion, 
It's a great and it, it's the a option, great recipe. It's absolutely beautiful and what, so pretty, Caro too. It's very pretty. What, what what's his name? Yotam. Yotam Ochilengi. He, he gives you the option of um, crumbling goat's cheese all over. He's the a good top. friend of Rishi Rishi Sunak. <laughs> <laughs> he's got lots of Australian friends too. The old Yotam. Anyway, he says you can. Optional sprinkle with goat's cheese. If you're having it as a, just a meal on its own, maybe, but you really don't need to. Corrie, it is so delicious. That's great. It was a great recipe. I highly recommend, especially, as we said, for for autumn. Caro, you are grumpy. Before I'm grumpy, I should just mention that that was BSF for Red Energy. Oh, sorry. I forgot the plug again. Isn't it time you called Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, on one Thank you, Red Energy. 806. Now, I preface this grumpy by saying I not for a minute underestimate the devastation of a cancer diagnosis. But when you get back from, you know, a summer holiday, an overseas trip, you haven't been to your house and there's three lots of mail. One is telling you you're overdue for a breast screen. The other one's telling, sending you the bowel cancer package because you're a year overdue in doing that. And the other one is telling you that you still haven't done your cervical cancer screening. And that's the three bits of mail you come home to. That it, I think grumpy is probably the wrong word. It's just the feeling of just overwhelmed, oh, just powerlessness. It's like, oh, this is but just... But, Carol, we're so lucky that we have these opportunities to test ourselves. I know. You can't be grumpy. You should I know. be grateful. I know. And I've already gone on to them all, but you just go, gee... Honestly, rather than, you know, I would rather go and have a colonoscopy than have one of those poo sample things. <laughs> <laughs> I could say they give me the SHITSs, but that would be too obvious a joke. I do have a friend a few years ago who did do the poo pack and had cancerous polyps and had a cancer surgery as a result, saved his life. So don't dismiss any of that in your mail. It's got to be done. And just to cap it all off, I had my first dentist appointment in a year the next day. So as you can imagine. I'm having a mammogram today, actually. Not a great what, day. What fun. Corrie, now fun. we move on to six quick questions. Yes, we do. So my first question is to you, Caroline Wilson. Where do you stand on the super debate? Well, I've been staggered. As in superannuation. Folks. I've been staggered by um, the response to the com- the revelation last week from Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese that they are got, they're looking at taxing, doubling the tax on superannuants who have more than $3 million in their superannuation Half your fund. luck. Well, yes, that's one way of looking at it. it, it in a sense, it, it, could be sold, it, it could be sold by the opposition quite successfully and the media is a broken election promise because I think Anthony Albanese didn't promise not to touch super, but he said there's no plan. It's definitely a broken to promise. To touch super. Yeah. But they have said they're going to take it into the next election as an election platform. So they're not doing it until they have a mandate to do it. So I don't think it's quite as bad as saying we're going to start it at the end of you know this current budget. They're clearly not going to do that. Uh, the media, by and large, has been pretty positive. I think most people, some people have said, well, no, you're not being tough enough on superannuation. My view is superannuation is a very, very sensitive topic for a lot of us because it's something we've worked long and hard secure, to secure. And we've been, you know, in the belief that we are not going to be further taxed, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, this has been coming. And certainly the previous um, government, the Morrison government, there were... There were certainly plans afoot there too. I'm assuming 
only because you, you've been a journalist all your life that you don't have $3 million of super. That's not the point, Corrie. The, the point is... Your, your point is what? Hands off our super, is it? No, my point is I'm amazed at... Uh, where I stand is I actually don't think people could be have too much trouble with that. I yes. mean, I, I really yes. don't. No, I, th- I think most but, Australians would feel very comfortable with that. But well, Because most Australians don't, don't have, have $3, $3 million, million dollars. in their super. And, and those who do have lots of money in other places. And those who don't think, well, I'm glad you're not touching mine. Yes. But more interestingly is the fact that I think by and large it's been pretty well received. Corrie, where or should King Charles, I still find that weird, give a pre-coronation interview? Yes, he should. Well, you know my view as an old communications advisor, hack. Any publicity, Caro, is good publicity so long as you can manage the story. So if I was his... his um, his advisor, and the BBC have been talking to Charles about doing this. Interestingly, they've mentioned Jonathan Dimbley as doing the interview. And if Dimbleby. You remember, Dimbleby. Sorry, Dimbleby, um, who in 1994, of course, did that famous right, the interview. <laughs> famous interview when Prince Charles, then Prince Charles, dropped the bombshell about him and Camilla and talked about it. Well, said he hadn't was, been faithful. Yes, that's I mean, right. I know. I don't know why it was well, such a revelation. Such a, well, no, but it was the fact that it, it the, the heir to the throne said it was incredible. It was. So uh, so there's been lots of nattering and chattering about this. And, and, of course, the focus has been on Charles will discuss his relationship with Harry, his second son. Um, apparently the and king, his brother? Well, that's what everybody's speculating, Caro. But apparently the king wants to talk about his vision for the monarchy in the future and what a modernised royal family should look like, which is quite topical given that Andrew's now been flung out of this home, that home, and um, hasn't been brought back into the fold. And his other siblings, Edward and Anne, have been elevated to uh, be the king's representatives. So but they can't, he can't expect to give an interview and not touch Harry or Andrew. Well, I would have thought. I hope it's not a sterilised. Never ends well when they give interviews. Well, no. Well, the other part of me is saying absolutely do not go near it with a barge pole. But then I think this is a different time, different place. And probably probably that is not a bad thing for Charles to do, to talk about how he sees the monarchy going forward. But gosh, I tell you what, if they don't ask a question about spare and the fact that it's sold more than uh, 1.5 million copies... (laughs) I'll go, I will be angry. Caro, if you could give uh, North Melbourne coach Alistair Clarkson just one piece of advice, oh, I'm sure he'd be listening because he listens to the podcast. Um, what, would, what would you be saying to him? Grow up. Oh, for goodness. Caro? He's, he has behaved in such a ridiculous fashion. He's back where he was in those early bad years of Hawthorne where he was threatening the media your time will come, you'll get yours. I reckon he said the same thing to Craig Hutchison one night um, on Footy Classified, um, swearing once at uh, Mark Robinson as he left a press conference um, to to suggest to, and it didn't, it, it doesn't matter who the journalist was, but it happened to be a young female journo, your time will come. I mean, seriously, when she was um, asking, apparently upsetting him by asking some very fair questions of Terry Thomas. What does that Thomas. mean, your time will come? Is that it's a threat? Of course it's a threat. Is it a physical threat? Oh, I don't know. Don't. What, well, what is her time will come? Oh, she'll be barred or banned or some the, the great wrath of someone will come down upon her. It's quite, it's quite an unnecessary thing to say, especially given think... what people have been saying he said at Hawthorne. Well, Tarrant Thomas 
is a North Melbourne footballer with some some great troubles and a, a checkered history relating to women. Now, I'm sorry, but the media has every right to question Tarrant Thomas's return to the North Melbourne um, to North Melbourne training group. Um, I don't think he's going to play for a while. And I and you know this sort of notion that players love coaches who back them to the hilt and back the team to the hilt and don't care if they abuse the media. Surely players are not that gullible and stupid. And for Alistair, with all the issues he's had, to do something like this and then to be for it to be so serious that the club has you know clearly made it clear that he well, he's agreed to go into Channel Nine and issue an apology and then not to apologise and you know continue to rant or name other sort of bugbears or not properly apologise or do a Wayne Carey apology is just beyond the pale. I'm really disappointed in him and I think other coaches are too. Well, that's going to kick things off really well for you when you have your pre-season catch up with him. Corrie, what is... Will you be doing that, Caro, next week? Not sure that'll happen. (laughs) What has been the best TV programming decision so far in 2023? Q&A, ABC, back to Monday night. Oh, couldn't agree more. But you'll be watching Footy Classified next Monday, so you're going to miss it, unfortunately. <laughs> no, go on. It sounded like a good one. I don't this know. Week. I don't know how to get myself out of that hole. Um, well, look, uh, yes, it, it was a good one this week, and last week was even better. I would suggest because they who's hosting? Well, Sam Grant is now. Stan Grant is now the um, permanent. Uh, host. Another good decision to have a permanent exactly, host. Exactly. And he's grown a nice little beard. So that's a good look, I think. But last week he had, uh, Ukraine was, um, was because of course it was a year since the Russians had invaded. And that was very interesting. And of course the ambassador to Ukraine in Australia is uh, an excellent talent. And he was on, um, as was Sarah McBride in the US States, uh, the um, Pat Conroy, Minister for Defence, Sarah McBride of the US State Senator. So it was a really good show. Last night was really good with David Hare, as I said earlier. Happy days, happy days. Start the agenda, start the week with Q&A. It just makes so much sense, Caro, don't you think? Yes, unless, you do. Unless you want to watch Footy Classified, unless which is you back want next to watch Monday night. At time, the time changes. Well, around sort of 10 o'clock. Mm, I know. Well, sometimes you can watch, earlier. You can watch half of Q&A. And sometimes then... earlier, sometimes later. Well, you can watch some of your program and then you whiz over too. You can always watch one online later. <laughs> you can. Um, don't forget, Footy Classified, back next week. <laughs> Carol, why is your life in disarray at the moment? Well, this week, you'll, you'll never guess what happened. The much-talked-of diary saga continues. I left it up at the Gold Coast, I think, at Bridge Congress. I can't find it. So I get back to Melbourne. I can't find my diary. You know, I'm, I'm lost. I told you there at Officeworks, Collins, 25% off. Yeah, um, well, yeah. And, you know, for someone to say, probably you, oh, well, at least your new one will be discounted. I mean, that is not the point, Corrie. I'd put in all the dates of everything. So I was um, at my local supermarket. There was a very small news agent attached to the supermarket. I was desperate. They only had one sort of diary, a day to a page. Oh, no. It's a disaster. I bought the day to a page. You can't glance at your week. It's a big fat diary. It's a disaster. I've got to go and get another one now, but I've filled in everything. Would you like me to pick you? I'm going to office works later today. Would you like me to pick you up one? I wouldn't. Well, look, I think it's a personal thing. I think I need to pick it myself. Thank you for the offer. I'm dev- It's just so distracting. I look at it. I've got no idea what's happening the next day. I have to, I can never find the page. It's mm-hmm. just terrible. So... Yeah, anyway, I've, I've 
missed appointments, well, not quite missed appointments, but almost missed appointments and scheduled things that I shouldn't have scheduled because Suck it I up actually right had now. something go on, else go on. Go and buy one today. I think I'm going to have to. Corrie, you have an amazing fact well, for a the few, week. Well, a few little facts because we were thinking of King Charles, so I just thought I'd give you a few little facts. I wasn't sure whether you knew this. Well, probably you did know that he was the longest serving Brit- British monarch in waiting. And did you know in 1975, Charles became a member of the Magic Circle? What do you think the Magic Circle is? Well, it wasn't a club hosted by Nancy Cato. With Fred Bear. <laughs> what was it? Out of Channel O in Nunawadi. It sounds a bit... A society for magicians. And he passed his audition, passed his, his little exam with a cup and balls trick. Really? Charles once revealed to actress Julie Walters, who was actually in the Harry Potter films, that he is a huge fan of the Harry Potter films. Charles's estimated worth is around $400 Now, I don't know whether that's US or Aussie dollars, folks. Probably pounds, isn't it? No, it had a dollar mark in front of it. But I can't remember the source, whether it was an American or an Australian. Anyway, it's still a lot of money. Did you know this? I did not know this, and I thought I was a bit of a fashion expert. Prince Charles was crowned the best-dressed man in the world by Esquire magazine in 2009. Mm. He even beat beat Barack Obama. He beat Bill Nye, and the journalist here says he beat Boris Johnson. I wouldn't have thought that was a hard thing. Charles's favourite meal is cheesy eggs. Did you know what cheesy eggs is? Well, it's probably an omelette with cheese in it. Well, no, you actually cook it like a little lasagna. It's it, the photograph. They had a photograph of it. I don't know whether it was direct from Clarence House or somebody. <laughs> just, it was in a little bowl like a lasagna, and it was just an egg with a bit of cheese on it. Charles only eats two meals a day, and he follows a plant-based diet. Um, did you know he was the first British royal to earn a degree? Yeah, but he still was quite thick, wasn't he, like all of them? <gasps> What's Sorry, your, that's, I don't, that's probably a word out. that you can't say anymore um, either. Apparently, um, what was the a degree king, in? Uh, it was a Bachelor of Arts degree. I understand. I think he studied archaeology and art, and then history. Okay, I shouldn't Majored say that. He's, he's probably mildly intelligent. Thank you very rude. Off with your head. <laughs> um, and the king apparently does not like chocolate. He does not drink coffee, and he does not eat garlic. There you go. Just a few little facts. I might have a few more before the coronation. I think he likes a tipple, though, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, we didn't get the favourite drink, but his favourite um, his favourite beverage is milk tea with honey and sugar, which I thought you know black tea maybe with the with the honey, but anyway, that's what honey and sugar or one or the other, the whole lot, no, the whole lot. On that note, it's been great to see you again, Corrie. Great to see you, Carol. We have a bonus episode this week. We do. Stay tuned, everybody. More of more of that later. Thank you, Miss Jane. Thank you, Red Energy. Thank you, Prince Wine Store. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.